Hey there, I'm so excited to tell you about Radiotopia's newest show, The Recipe with Kenji and Deb. Kenji and Deb are two of the best home cooks alive. J. Kenji Lopez-Alt of The Food Lab and The Walk, and Deb Perlman of Smitten Kitchen. Two of my go-tos to make sure I'm getting the perfect recipe for everything from meatballs to muffins. They're pros who obsess over techniques and essential ingredients, so you learn everything you need to create your perfect recipe. You can finally be excited to eat what you make, and maybe even impress your friends and family. Help us welcome the newest show to the Radiotopia family. Find The Recipe with Kenji and Deb on your favorite podcast platform starting February 26th. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive helps you compare direct auto rates from a variety of companies so you can find a great one, even if it's not with them. Quote today at Progressive.com to find a rate that works with your budget. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Hello and welcome to This Day in Esoteric Political History from Radiotopia. My name is Jody Avergan. This day, January 11th, 1971, U.S. attorneys charged the Harrisburg Seven, which is a group of seven religious anti-war activists led by former Roman Catholic priest Philip Berrigan. Uh, What were they charged with? Well, they were charged with a conspiracy to kidnap National Security Advisor Henry Kissinger and bomb steam tunnels in Washington, D.C., under some federal office buildings. Um, As we will discuss, Berrigan was a longtime activist, anti-war agitator. This was one of many plots and schemes and confrontations with the government over the war in Vietnam and then a long history and life and legacy of anti-war efforts. So here to discuss this moment, the plot to kidnap Kissinger are, as always, Nicole Hammer of Columbia and Kelly Carter-Jackson of Wellesley. Hello there. Hello, Jody. Hey there. Do you want to start a little with, with Philip Bergen, a really fascinating character, someone we haven't, I don't think, touched on on this show so far? Um, what, are you, uh, what do we need to know about him? What, a, what an interesting mix. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, I feel like this whole episode could be a movie. Oh, yeah. Maybe because I'm thinking of like Sister Act or whatever. But <laughs> oh, you were going comedy. Like, <laughs> <laughs> think of like a priest and a nun trying to set off like bombs and dynamite and tunnels. And it just, it seems so outlandish, but I would totally love it if it were a movie to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, as the, the resident Catholic, I uh-huh. mean, Barrigan is a fascinating character. We don't often think about, first of all, Catholics in general, but it, Catholic priests and nuns as being part of these big political uh, Roman Catholic. I mean, you know, probably the, the stodgiest <laughs> in my, you know, in my mind, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. Well, it's so fascinating because you see pictures um, from another group that he was involved with, the Catonsville Nine, um, which he also got arrested for, where they had broken into um, a army field office and they had stolen all these draft records and then they had put them on fire with napalm and the group of people that are circling this trash can that's on fire are all in Roman Catholic garb, right? There are priests wearing colors, there are nuns wearing habits. And it there is a kind of incongruity because you're not used to seeing those images. But there is this strong tradition. Yeah of left-wing Catholicism. I mean, it's it's much um, bigger in South and Latin America um, with liberation theology, but there was there were people like Berrigan who, during the Vietnam War, 
I think it's fair to say we're radicalized by their opposition to the war and the inability of political systems to stop the war. There had been so many protests. There had been so much activism. And so as the war continued, his methods got more and more extreme. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the... Um cover in a way that you know someone from a priest offers to you know so much of the story of vietnam activism was about a generational divide about um you know a gap between kids and their parents and so to have a priest as part of in your circle and say well look this is you know it's possible to have an expansive vision of what it means to oppose the war i think is um is really interesting and i think a big part of it too but i mean there's i mean i think about Berrigan and i think about you know we've talked so many times about abolitionists, you know, and, and the mm-hmm. sort of like legacy of the, the sort of religious call towards justice. And so it's incongruous, but it also feels very much like we've had that throughout this country's history. Yeah, civil very much. Well, this isn't necessarily civil disobedience, <laughs> but, but this sort of like radical protest, I think, is a part of that narrative. I, I do think that it's just it's hard, I think, to picture all of this because we think that religious officials are pacifists or that they are not going to ever use violence or force as a way to prove their point. But according to Berrigan, I mean, you can be anti-war and still use force as a way of compelling yeah. people to stop. I'm curious, Kelly, as someone who studies violence used by abolitionists for a just cause. I mean, what do you make of someone like Berrigan using violence to stop a war? Yeah, I mean, it it kind of makes sense. I think there are people who are like William Lloyd Garrison who are hands down, never wanted to use violence. But I think people understood it as a form of protection that you were using violence to stop violence. And so if you're looking at it in that way, it doesn't hold the same sort of like destructive um, ideas in your head because you're trying to stop a greater destruction. And sometimes um, force or even violent force is is required to do that. Um, but people had, had biblical rationales in their head about how they justified using this force and, and using violence to stop it. Yeah. We did that episode about the bombing at the University of Wisconsin, uh, Sterling mm-hmm. Hall, and we heard from, you know, and in there you heard from a bunch of people saying, you know, we're using violence to stop a greater violence, you know, and that feels like mm-hmm. justified to us. Yes, we're pacifists. Yes, we're anti-war, but, you know, a violent act to stop a greater injustice feels feels justified mm-hmm. here. Um, so let's go to this scheme, this plot, and I suppose we should also kind of point out that this can be, um, add this to our ongoing list of failed schemes in American history, yes. you know, which seems to be like <laughs> our, our most consistent uh, story that we, we, we revisit. Um, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll like compile them all into one big long special or something. But um, again, I see this as a movie. Yeah. I see them in a room gathered together and they basically plan to get maps and diagrams of the underground tunnels in Washington, D.C. that have all like the heating systems of the government buildings. And then they were going to put dynamite charges in those buildings and detonate them at five different locations in order to make the the buildings inoperable. And then they were going to kidnap Kissinger. I mean, the the plot like gets more and more complex, but it's just wild to see how they're getting this all yeah. together or well, attempting and, to get and it and together. And what you laid out is what the government says was being plotted and what Hoover says is being plotted. And I think when it goes to trial, that's the case being made. As I think is mm-hmm. often the case, as I've learned when we do our failed schemes in American history shows, um, 
there's a real murky territory between how real was this plot? How, you know, how legit was this? I mean, the government always wants to say they were right on the brink of executing this masterfully. And I think sometimes history says, well, you know, people were just mouthing off or whatever. So, you know, what, Nikki, what is your sense of like, were they right on the cusp of kidnapping Kissinger? I mean, they, they certainly were dedicated to the proposition of big, bold and violent acts in order to end the war. This plan doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, I don't think there's a real connection between dynamiting these tunnels and then the next day they go and they kidnap Kissinger, which seems like really bad planning. People are going to be at high alert. How are you going to get Kissinger? Like, have you been following his schedule? Do you have some way of overcoming whatever securities around him? Like, it, it's not a plot that seems to have the finer grained mm-hmm. details worked out. So, were they well, about to kidnap Kissinger? Neither, neither was the Vietnam not. War, to be fair. You know, no one had really <laughs> thought fair, through yes, the, yes, uh, <laughs> the details of how that one was going to work out. But yes, uh, yeah, yeah, bunch of people who well, don't they had really the, know what the military. Doing. That's um, true. So they were. Um, but you know, there is there is accusations in the trial, and I think evidence that they actually did enter these tunnels to scout them out um, and get their hands on some plans. And so, yes, it is right on that line. Um, it does go to trial, and I think generally, I mean, we should say that Berrigan and um, a couple others do end up imprisoned, but not exactly. I don't think this exactly counts as a win for the government. So what? Ex- how, do, how does this play out in, in the trial? Well, it, to me, it's interesting how the lead defense attorney, Ramsey Clark, sensed that a jury would be sympathetic to seeing priests and nuns and and thought that that sympathy would sort of, you know, work work in their favor. And so he doesn't call anybody to the stand. He only gets up and says, quote, Your Honor, the defendants shall always seek peace. They continue to proclaim their innocence. The defense rests. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> like, that's, that's it? Another that's good it. movie scene. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? But, um, the you know, the trial ends with a hung jury. So it's, it's not as though... They have a complete acquittal, but they don't have much of a defense. Yeah, it's fascinating because, well, first of all, in a trial today, a priest might not elicit the same kind of sympathy that Mm. the priests in the early 1970s were eliciting. There was just such a disjuncture between the idea that you know, these humble priests and nuns could um, possibly do this. But Clark also doesn't want to call them to the stand because if he calls them to the stand, mm-hmm. they're going to say things like we burned draft cards and we made napalm and all of these different sorts of things that was going to undercut that sympathy really quickly because the U.S. in the early 1970s still has a very large group of people who oppose the anti-war movement. Um, so it's actually mm-hmm. a pretty genius move by this defense attorney and It works. I mean, the only thing that they end up going to prison for is, I think at this time, for secretly passing along letters letters that they weren't supposed to sneak along, which we should say, including love letters between Mm -hmm. the priests and one of the nuns. (laughs) Well, yeah, of course, you know, if you're going to if this is going to be a movie, you have to have that that (laughs) forbidden love um, angle there, which actually, I mean, is one of the more fascinating parts of the the Bergen story. I mean, yes, they're passing letters and that's what they go to jail for is, is illegally smuggling letters in and out of, of a federal penitentiary. Bergen marries a nun, is excommunicated for the church for that. Um, one interesting thing is they're married for 29 years. 11 of those years in their 29-year marriage, one of them or the other is in jail. I mean, they just live mm. this life of activism and, and continually getting arrested and so forth. So yes, it has this fascinating um, 
Coda and and love and love angle. Um, Over a third of their marriage. That's commitment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's commitment yeah. to a cause, and I suppose to each other through that yeah. cause. Yeah. And you know, I also think one other element here is the story that starts to rise up in the early seventies of just sort of FBI spying and sort of the the way that the FBI tries to infiltrate groups like this. And we've talked about this a number of times, um, everyone from John Lennon to the Weathermen to the Black Panthers, you know, um, and that's happening here too. And I do think like a lot of those stories often end with egg on the face of the government. And I mean, in this case, you know, spending $2 million to prosecute yeah. this group um, and being really, and it being really high profile. And at the end, you, you know, all you get them for is passing some illegal love letters in and out of prison. Um, mm. I do think that's part of a piece of a larger story. Absolutely. And that's going to come out just a few years later that the federal government has been spying on American citizens. And it's a huge scandal. Um, but this this story is, is part of that one, too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Ramsey Clark, by the way, can we go back to Ramsey Clark, who was a, a, mm-hmm. attorney general in this yeah. country um, and then served as the defense attorney here? Um, listeners, go down the, the Ramsey Clark rabbit hole when you have a chance. We will revisit his career at some point because it is it is remarkable when you look at the list of people that he um, offered legal counsel to, um, including also mm-hmm. some civil rights activists and so forth. But anyway, anyway, sorry. Uh, felt felt important to mention that. Um <laughs> Can I can I tell you one other thing I'm thinking about with this story? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't we don't get together and name ourselves the place we're from and the number of people in the group anymore. You know, agreed. The, mm. we, we should we should just. I mean, Berrigan was part of Catonsville Nine. He was also part of the Baltimore mm-hmm. Four. He was also part of the Harrisburg mm-hmm. Seven. I mean, there's a nice simplicity there. Get some friends yeah. together. Be from a place, and that's all you need. You don't need a fancy name <laughs> for your clique. Just where you're from and how many of them there are. It is tough to it is tough to bring people in or, or lose people. You know, you got to do a one to one swap if someone yeah, wants yeah. to come in because yeah. you got to keep that number. Uh, yeah. But, Nowadays it's like the Zoom exactly. seven. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is the Zoom three. Yeah, that's exactly that's right. right. The Google Meets nine. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Um, oh, by the way, this. Um, this Baltimore Four, which is one of the groups that he was a part of, and that um, so we mentioned the obviously the Harrisburg Seven was was this group we're talking about. Um, the Catonsville Nine was the ones that Nikki mentioned, the group that um, bro- broke into an uh, office and burned some some materials. The Baltimore Four staged a protest in which they broke into, I think it was a draft office, took out stuff, mm-hmm. and poured blood. Um, over the documents, it, their own blood, so that in advance of this, they had gotten together and withdrawn their own blood and they also had some fake blood and then there was a whole story about one of the guys was like i don't know if i want you to use my blood like i'll give you blood but i don't want you to pour it in public over this anyway it was just like real a very intense protest (laughs) um that uh that was the baltimore four yes but anyway that was um you know gives you a sense of how committed and you know radical activism that berrigan was involved in throughout throughout his career i guess it's worth mentioning uh as we wrap up that after the Vietnam War ends, obviously he, he continues to be a political activist. The next thing that he focuses on is uh, nuclear weapons. And yeah. this becomes a huge mm. issue in the 1980s. And he repeatedly goes to jail for things like messing with defense systems um, and is involved in this non-pacifistic pacifist group, uh, his plowshares <laughs> operation. He wants to beat those swords into plowshares, but at first he wants to use them as swords. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, we, we didn't mention that he was a vet, you know, that he had, he had fought in, mm-hmm. in World War II. I mean, it's worth, you know, it's just an interesting part of the mix there. There is a documentary. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't seen it, but 
I don't know if a documentary is as exciting as what I wanted to do. The movie <laughs> script you've been writing. <laughs> what I to see, yeah, but yeah. but there is a documentary you can watch about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, let's wrap it up there. Hollywood, you have the seeds <laughs> of a pitch here. You know, you, you can. Uh, Kelly's very easy to track down if you need a story consultant. I need consultant. a 2% finder's yeah. fee, yeah. just saying. All right. Um, but yeah, this is a fascinating character, fascinating story, and um, lots of other sort of tentacles and ripples that I'm sure we will revisit. Um, but Nicole Hammer, thanks to you as always. Thank you, Jody. And Kelly Carter Jackson, thanks to you as always. My pleasure. Father Philip Berrigan and Sister Elizabeth McAllister were sentenced today in connection with the Harrisburg 7 case. A federal judge ordered Berrigan to serve two years and Miss McAllister one year. They were the only two convicted in that alleged plot to kidnap Henry Kissinger, and they were convicted on a peripheral charge involving a little-used law, smuggling letters from prison. The jury did not agree on the conspiracy charges themselves, and the government said it will ask dismissal of them. It is, as you may have heard, an election year. But do you feel like you have a lot of choices? Here are the new candidates, same as the old candidates. How did we get here again? The fact is, our democracy is broken. We can all feel it, and there's data to back it up, too. A Princeton University study found that public opinion has near zero impact on what laws are passed. You know what does have an impact, though? Money. You can call it lobbying, you can call it super PAC spending, you can call it corruption. But luckily, there are things we can do right now to fix this broken system. This podcast is part of the Pro-Democracy Podcast Coalition, a group that's banding together to make our democracy better. We're working with Represent Us, the largest grassroots organization fighting to end corruption city by city and state by state. You can join the movement too. Go to represent.us slash podcast to find out more. Radiotopia.